Good morning. I invite you to turn in a Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. If you have a Bible or an app, if you don't have one, there should be one in a rack near you that you can help yourself to. If you don't have your own Bible, uh, we would love to give that to you as our gift. want everybody to have a Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is our second look at this particular passage. If you weren't here two weeks ago for our first look, uh, you can find that message and the others on our website, philida.org. My goal in that first message was to explain what the passage is teaching and then what we should do if that teaching seems strange or even distasteful, unpleasant to us, unloving to us, what, what should we do? The passage teaches at least two things, just by way of review. It teaches first that there are moral boundaries. There are universal moral boundaries. That means moral boundaries that apply to everybody everywhere that define what's good and what isn't. Moral boundaries for things like sex, handling money, uh, drinking alcohol, and so on. And the second thing it says is that those moral boundaries need to be embraced and upheld within a church, a community of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and are seeking to follow him. So uh, what I want to do this time is look at some more implications of what this passage is teaching. So we're going to read a section of it now, uh, ch chapter 5. We're going to look verses 9 to 11. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to the group of Jesus believers, the church in Corinth. And he says this, I wrote to you in my letter, meaning a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, someone who professes to be a fellow believer in Jesus. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And as I mentioned last time, we're not talking here about an oops, a mistake, uh, a blow it. We're talking about someone who persists in behavior that's contrary to the moral boundaries of Scripture and uh, is unwilling to turn from that behavior. So, you can see it here, those two principles, those two teachings. Paul affirms there are moral boundaries, and it's not okay for someone who claims to be a believer in Jesus to violate those moral boundaries without recognizing it as wrong and turning from it. And then if you go on and read the rest of the passage, uh, Paul is telling the Corinthians that as a church, they need to take action 
because one of their members is living in defiance of the scriptural boundaries regarding sexuality. And so they need to confront him and they need to remove him if he continues to refuse to honor the moral boundaries that Jesus gave us. And why do they need to do that? Why do they need to confront him and remove him if he doesn't repent? Because it's the loving thing to do. Even if it doesn't seem like it to us. It's what Jesus himself told us to do in order to bring about a change of heart in the defiant person so that they would turn around, so that they would come and live in relationship, the relationship with God that Jesus died to give us. That's what we all want to be doing, living in that relationship. And so the reason churches are supposed to affirm and uphold the boundaries that God's word gives us and that Jesus affirmed for us is that those boundaries are good. They're good. They, they are good for us. They mark out the path that leads to healthy, flourishing relationships. And those boundaries keep us from hurting ourselves and hurting others. As uh, Pastor Andy Stanley puts it, they're like guardrails. This is a, seems, uh, you know, an a, especially good illustration when you just live through the snowpocalypse and guardrails, you know, keep you on the road. They keep you safe. They, they keep you on the road. God's guardrails keep us on the, the, the road of his good design. They protect us from going off a cliff. And as I said last time, what would be really foolish is for us to ignore or resent God's guardrails. But we do, sometimes. We do. We don't understand the guardrail. We don't like the guardrail. We even resent the guardrail. And I remember this as a, as a young, unmarried man resenting God's guardrail for sex irritated me. It frustrated me to have a desire that I could not legitimately fulfill as a follower of Jesus within the scriptural boundaries that Jesus affirmed. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's ever been there. And the culture that we are living in definitely resents and frequently ignores God's guardrails. All of them, not just this one. <laughs> to state the obvious, Jesus puts the guardrails in a different place than our culture does for many things, including sexuality. And if you're wondering why focus on the sexual guardrail in particular, well, there's at least three reasons why to, to do that. The first and obvious one is it's the focus of the passage because the Corinthians were really struggling with that guardrail. And then another reason is that it's an issue that many Christians struggle with today. We struggle with this, especially as our culture gets increasingly aggressive about challenging the scriptural guardrails. And then third reason 
is that ignoring this guardrail in particular is hurting people deeply. And as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to care. We need to care when people are getting hurt. Sex has a unique power to mess up someone's life if it's misused. Now, it has a unique power to bless someone's life if it's used properly within the guardrails of, that God gives us. But it's got this unique power to be, to be damaging, to be hurtful if it's misused. And I'll talk more later about why. Uh, but the longer I have lived, the more I have come to appreciate just how good how loving, how wise God's guardrail is. And it's not just because I'm married. It's because I've just seen so much heartbreak. So many, so many of the heartbreaking situations in our world can be traced directly or indirectly to our refusal to live within the boundaries Jesus gave us. What I used to resent, I now thank God for. So, for those reasons, I want to explore the topic a little more deeply. And I want to start by making sure that we're clear on where Jesus puts the guardrail. Because as I said, Jesus puts this guardrail in a very different place than our culture does. And so really, depending on how much the culture influences your thinking, Jesus' guardrail for sex might seem really weird to you, or really unfamiliar, or really old-fashioned or something. So I don't want to assume that everybody already knows what Jesus has said on the topic. So one of the clearest places to see this is in the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the four biographies we have about Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is asked a question about marriage and divorce. So we'll start in verse 3, Matthew 19, 3. And Pharisees, they were some of the most influential religious leaders of the day. Pharisees came up to him and tested him. And what that means is their question's not sincere. They're not really looking to, uh, to get information that they want. What, what they're trying to do is set Jesus up and get him to say something that will make people mad and turn them away from him and create controversy and all that. So that's their, their aim. So they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? <laughs> because you had some who were teaching yeah, whatever, she burns your toast, you can divorce her. Or some were, you know, no, no, you can't do that. It's got to be a lot more serious than that. So there's this controversy, and the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to, you know, get embroiled in it. So look at how he answers. Verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, he who created them said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man, humanity, separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, they're misrepresenting. Moses didn't command that. So he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, there's a lot here. And if we tried to answer all the questions, we'd be here all day and we don't have time. For the moment, I want to just focus on two things. Two things to notice. First, notice, notice that Jesus appeals to Scripture. He appeals to Scripture about the union of the first man and woman to settle a question about marriage. That's really interesting. So in Jesus' mind, if you want to know what God's intentions are for marriage, you've got to go back to the beginning and you've got to see what he said about that first relationship. He appeals to Scripture. He says, you want to know what God wants? Then go back and look at what he said about that first couple's relationship. Second thing to notice is that Jesus says sexual immorality is a serious problem that violates marriage and can even justify divorce. Doesn't make divorce mandatory, but it can justify it. So, according to Jesus, God has a design for marriage, and sexual immorality, whatever that is, violates that design. Well, what's his design? Jesus says, the creator, God made humanity, male and female, and because he did, because he did, a man leaves his parents, unites with a woman who becomes his wife in a union that God intends to be lifelong. They're no longer two, he says, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, so what is sexual immorality? It's any sexual activity outside of that God-designed union of marriage. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, for one thing, for one thing, it's because of how the passage tells us what sex is for. A man holds fast to his wife and the two become one flesh, and in context, that's a marriage thing. But beyond that, it's what the word translated sexual immorality means. Throughout the New Testament, throughout the literature contemporary with the New Testament. It's a very broad word. It's the Greek word porneia. We get our word pornography from it. It's a very broad word that describes any sexual encounter outside of marriage. That's what it means. So it covers everything from adultery, that is sex with someone who's married to someone else, premarital sex, prostitution, casual hookups, 
sex with more than one person, pornography, really any sexual involvement beyond that guardrail that Jesus affirmed, which is the one man, one woman commitment of marriage. So you can see that this is obviously very different from what our culture promotes. And you can also see why, so, why someone might resent Jesus' guardrail. Sexual desire is a very strong desire. And if you want to satisfy that desire in a way that doesn't fall within the boundaries of marriage as Jesus defines it, well, that might really irritate or frustrate you. And so what might you do? Well, you might be inclined to then redefine the boundary. Or you might be inclined to rationalize why the boundaries don't apply to you. That happens a lot. It's called exceptional thinking, and we say, well, it doesn't apply in my case because we really love each other or whatever. I'm not trying to be glib. I'm just saying that's, that those are the options. Redefine the boundary or say the boundaries don't matter. In other words, you might very well embrace a do-it-yourself morality, which is this. You decide for yourself. You decide for yourself what is good sexually. You decide, you determine where the boundaries are. And if you do that, you will have the full support of the entertainment industry, of influential people in our culture. You will have all kinds of support, even from some people who profess to love and follow Jesus. Our culture is very supportive of moving the sexual guardrail. But, interestingly enough, not to eliminate it completely. Now, you might think that's what the culture would promote. You know, let's, let's, everybody just put the guardrail where you want. Anything goes. That's not, that's not true. All you have to do is think about the hashtag MeToo phenomenon. What's that all about? It's not true that anything goes. It's not true that anything's acceptable sexually. Most people still do not approve of prostitution. Most people still do not approve of cheating on your spouse. Most people still do not approve of sex with a minor. Most people still do not approve of rape. That's where that Me Too thing comes. Most people still understand we need some kind of sexual guardrail to protect us, to protect the vulnerable. They just don't like Jesus' guardrail. They want to put it somewhere else, in a place called consent. Because they think they know better. They think they know better how to be happy, how to be fulfilled how to be satisfied. Now that's understandable. If someone doesn't know or care about Jesus or care about what the Bible teaches, that's completely understandable. But when a believer in Jesus goes outside of God's boundaries for sexuality, if we do that, we're doing the same thing. 
we're acting like we know better than Jesus. So the question on this issue and really all the others that we could name, it really comes down to this. Whom, whom do you trust? Whom do you trust to know what is best in defining the boundaries sexually? Whom do you trust to put the guardrail in the best possible place? You? The culture? The people who want to sell you something? Sell you an abortion? Do you trust them to put the guardrail in the best possible place? Or do you trust the one who made you? The one who created sex, incidentally. The one who became human and died to rescue you from sin's devastation and give you life and make your joy complete. Well, it's pretty obvious what I think. But you know what? What I think isn't the issue. What I think isn't the issue. What I think, what anybody else thinks, the issue, the issue is what Jesus said. He affirmed the scriptural guardrail, the, the scriptural guardrails of God's beautiful design, and he warned us not to disregard them. So the real issue is whether or not we're going to trust him. I really want that to just be so clear. That's the issue. Why? Why should we trust Jesus' guardrail for sex? That probably sounds like a really crazy question to ask in church. In fact, you might be thinking, wait, did he just say what I thought he said? Did he just ask, why should we trust Jesus? Isn't this a, this is a church, right? Are you serious? Yeah, actually, I'm dead serious. Because that's the question we wrestle with when we are considering the, the issue of sex outside of marriage. That's the question we're wrestling with. Should we honor? Should we uphold? Should we go with Jesus' guardrail on sexuality or not? That's, that's the issue we're wrestling with. So should we trust Jesus and his guardrail or not? Well, of course, the biggest part of the answer is yes, of course, we should trust Jesus on sex, along with everything else he affirmed, because of who he is, because of who he is, because of all he's done for us and all that he has promised to do for those who trust him. Of course, Colossians 1.15 he is the image 
of the invisible God. Okay, so he's the invisible God made visible. He's firstborn over all creation. That's a reference to his authority. For by him all things were created. If you fit in that category, raise your hand. All things were created through him and for him. Well, if that's true, then trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Know him and he will make your path straight. But we've already explored this in the early chapters of this book. So you can go back and read. And you can go back and listen to those messages and you can find huge reasons why Jesus is worthy of all your trust on all issues. That's where the book started. So we've been there. But perhaps, perhaps it would be helpful, and that, that's my heart's desire, ladies and gentlemen, is to be helpful. Perhaps it would be helpful to also look at some smaller reasons. That's the big reason. The smaller reasons why Jesus' guardrail on sex is far better than the alternative guardrail promoted by our culture. As I mentioned, pretty much it's the guardrail called consent. And it goes like this. As long as we're talking about adults who give their mutual consent to a sexual relationship, then it's fine. It's good. And that has a certain logical appeal. Make, make sense in some ways, because obviously consent is necessary. Okay? I mean, that, that's the driving impulse of the Me Too movement. Non-consensual sex is wrong. It's immoral. In fact, it's illegal. So consent is necessary. But is it enough? Is it enough? Can it keep you on the road of healthy relationships and personal wholeness? Is consent a trustworthy guardrail to keep you from heading into a relational ditch or off a relational cliff? And the answer is no. No. It's way too weak. It would be like building a guardrail out of Legos. It's not going to hold. Why not? Well, I'll give you a couple, couple flaws. Point out a couple flaws. First one. Consent underestimates the power of sex. It drastically underestimates the power of sex. So the idea that consent is enough, it's a good enough guardrail, that assumes that sex is a simple encounter that will not affect you all that much. So a sexual experience is really no more significant <laughs> than eating or drinking. You're just satisfying a desire like hunger or thirst. So what's the big deal? It's no big deal. Well, that's not true, and I think deep down most people know it. Just to point out one obvious difference, you don't get pregnant by eating or drinking. 
The sexual union has amazing power, incredible power, the potential to bring a new life into existence. Do you know what? If consent, if consent were an adequate guardrail, we would not as a country be putting to death 3,000, close to 3,000 human lives every day. We're doing that in the name of consent and choice. Hey, we were just consenting to have some fun. We didn't intend to make a baby. You don't have to intend to. It's powerful. Mere consent is completely irresponsible given the power of sex to create life. But that's not all. There's more power here. Sex also has the power to connect you at the deepest personal level. This is so critical. To connect you at the deepest personal level with someone else. So look at 1 Corinthians 6.18. Jumping ahead in the book a little bit, but look at it. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Which, by the way, that's his basic go-to advice when you're tempted to engage in sex outside of marriage. What do you do? Run. Get out of there. Don't try to reason with your desires. Your desires don't give a rip about reason. Get out. All right. It's another sermon. Now look at this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against or literally in his own body. What is he talking about? Well, in one sense, sexual immorality is like any other sin, which is why in chapter 5, he lists immorality along with greed and swindling and idolatry and drunkenness. So it's just another sin in the sense that it, like all sins, is a failure to trust God, and like all sins, it's hurtful. But here, but here, Paul is pointing out that there is something uniquely damaging about sexual sin. You hurt yourself in a unique way when you violate this guardrail. Now, why would that be? Because God gave sex the power to make two people one. Sex is like superglue for the soul. It's superglue for the soul. To bring a husband and a wife together in the tightest possible bond. Now, I don't know if you've ever used superglue. And I don't know if you've ever got in, gotten anywhere you shouldn't. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. The warning's all over. I found this warning on a website. <laughs> it says the primary risk is bonding fingers or other body parts together. Bonding them together. Never try to tear apart the bonded body parts. Why? Because you are really going to hurt yourself. You're going to tear. It's 
skin. You're going to tear something that shouldn't be torn. Now, here's the thing about super glue. It doesn't know what you're trying to do. And frankly, it doesn't care. Super glue is not sitting there thinking, oh, this guy, all he's trying to do is reattach a handle to a mug. So when I'm there, I'll do it. But hey, if he gets them on his fingers, I'll, you know, I won't. No, super glue, it just does what it's meant to do. It binds two things together, whether you want those two things bound together or not. Okay, what super glue does to your fingers, sex does to your soul. It binds you to another soul, whether you want it to or not. Attachments will be made. Emotions will be deeply affected. Memories will be stored. And within marriage, those are all good things. Meant to help us experience oneness. And to reflect the oneness of Jesus and his church. That's the deep theology behind all this. It creates a oneness meant to reflect a oneness. Jesus and his church. But see, to take that bonding power and to use it casually to use it carelessly without the promise of lifelong love and support and sacrifice for the best interests of the other, that is just asking to have your soul torn. The guardrail of consent cannot protect your heart. It's just not enough. And the other flaw. Consent is an unreliable guide to what is best. You know, just because people agree to do something together doesn't make it a good thing. I was a teenager once. <laughs> I agreed to do things with other people. They weren't good. Think about it. What is consent? It's an expression of desire, right? Consent is an expression of desire. I want to do it. You want to do it? Okay, good. We'll, we'll agree to do it. Since when is desire a reliable guide to what's best? Really? That's toddler logic, right? A toddler says, I want it, therefore it's good. I demand it. And so parents always give toddlers whatever they want because they always want good things, right? It's toddler logic. It, it, if that were true, if that were true, nobody would ever regret doing anything that they wanted to do at the time. Is that true? <laughs> I, I think most of us can make a fairly decent list of stupid things that seemed like a good idea at the time. We wanted to do it at the time and later on regretted it a lot. See, consent is no, is no guarantee against regret. And there are countless stories, countless stories of people connecting themselves to somebody and later regretting it when passion wore off. We, we need a more reliable guide 
We need a more, far more reliable guide, guide for sexuality to keep us from misusing its power. To keep us on the road of healthy relationships. To keep us from hurting ourselves and hurting others. To keep us from creating children that we either don't want or don't have the ability to provide what they need, the love and the stability, the stable environment that they need. We need a stronger guardrail. And the God who made us, the God who knows us, the God who loves us, who wants us to live lives free from regret and shame, he has given us one. Jesus, he always knows what's best for you. He always wants what's best for you. He affirmed it. Hear it again. He, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So it really comes down to this. Whom do we trust? Whom do we trust? Now, if you're wondering, well, what do I do? Man, I've violated that guardrail. And maybe you're living outside of that guardrail. Know that Jesus says, come inside. Come and join me on the road. I'll forgive. He forgives any violation of any guard. Everybody in this room has violated God's guardrail somewhere. Maybe a lot. That's what sin is. We think we know better. And Jesus says, all who come to me, I will forgive. I will never cast out. But you have to trust him. You have to join him on his road and agree that his guardrails are best even when you don't understand them. If you're outside of his guardrail right now more than anything, he wants you to receive his complete pardon. He wants you to walk with him, to trust him with your whole life. Let's pray. And I'll just give you a moment. to pray and talk to him and say whatever it is you need to say. Gracious, gracious Father, you love us, you made us, you want us to live lives in relationship with you, trusting you, receiving all your forgiveness and grace and mercy and following you on the road of goodness. Help us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying that we might have life. Thank you for calling us to come. Help us follow you no matter how confused this world gets, no matter how confused we are personally. Help us hear your voice by your spirit. May we learn to love your guardrails. Help us walk within them. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.